John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. I hear the word of God. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them, even as you loved me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Even to us this morning. Uh, yesterday, you might have seen, there was a, a royal wedding, right, in Windsor Chapel, uh, uh, Windsor, Windsor um, Cathedral, uh, that the Prince Harry took Meghan Markle to be his bride. And I'll admit, I did not watch the coverage of it. I did not get up early. I didn't particularly get into it. I just saw a handful of pictures, right, all the celebrities that were there and the pomp and circumstance and something like a 16-foot-long train uh, to her dress. Um, remarkable, uh, but but I do find it fascinating uh, how much changes in that moment, uh, especially for Meghan Markle, that, that she becomes at that point of the ceremony she becomes a royal, right? Uh, she becomes a royal. She enters into a new level of of wealth and of status, of privilege and of influence. Uh, that it is almost unparalleled in, in today's society. Uh, all because of the new status of her relationship uh, to Prince Harry, as now her husband, right? Other scripture uh, speaks about uh, the church as Jesus' bride, right? Ephesians talks about how Jesus uh, gave himself up for her and loved her as his bride, uh, purifying her and taking her uh, to himself. Um, and, and we hear in Jesus' uh, prayer here, uh, his, his prayer for the whole of his church. But I think we often uh, fail to appreciate how much has changed uh, for believers because of that relationship with Jesus. Uh, that we, we tend to un underestimate uh, the new level of, of privilege and status. Uh, an influence that is ours even on a heavenly scale uh, from Jesus' care for us. Understandable in some ways, uh, because some days you're just trying to, still just trying to make it. We're still just trying to, to make it through that day, and we can, we can draw back from and forget from the fullness of what's ours. But in Jesus' prayer in these verses for the whole of the church, we're reminded of the beauty of the gospel. Uh, the impact of the gospel on us. What Jesus wants for you, what he longs for and prays for and that the Father uh, answers, we're reminded of how much Jesus has provided uh, for every believer, even now in the world. That not long after Jesus prayed this prayer, that Jesus stood in our place on the cross. And as Isaiah says, uh, the, Lord, um, the Lord laid on him uh, the iniquity of us all. 
all our wrongdoings, all our failures that he took the blame for. And not only that, uh, but that also uh, in place of just what we might be able to achieve for ourselves, what status or importance we could gain, uh, Jesus gives the fullness of everything that he has earned to you as his people. It defines you. It belongs uh, to you. The privilege and status that he earned by his uh, perfect obedience. And so while all those uh, benefits are more than we can measure uh, and more than we would be able to to describe uh, even this morning, uh, this passage uh, centers us on at least three aspects of it that I want us uh, to bring out as we see it. We see what does Jesus pray for the church? What does Jesus pray uh, for us? What does he pray for you and his church uh, throughout the world? And, and first of all, we see glory. We see glory come up several times uh, in, this, in this prayer. I think it's a central connection of all the different parts of it. Uh, but Jesus prays for glory. And as we'll talk about it, particularly glory in place of shame. Uh, but did you catch the statement that Jesus makes in verse 22? Uh, it's, it's absolutely staggering uh, to me. Since the first time that I ever like worked on this passage and saw this, it was like I just sat back and was like, whoa. Like, what does this mean? How rich could this be that Jesus says as he prays to the Father, the glory that you have given to me, I give to them. I have given to them. So the church, you and churches all through history and globally, I have the very glory of Jesus is yours. The status and privilege of who he is, that gets to belong to you as his church. It's hard to take in. Uh, and we're not going to be able to like describe all of every parts of it, but I think it's good for us to stand in all of it. And to be reminded of it. It's helpful for us to get to meditate it on, on it for a little bit, on the truth of it. But you see it in the passage. There's a probably notice as we read it uh, that there's a parallelism that runs through these verses, right? Uh, everything you kind of hear echoed twice on those verses uh, 20 and 21 are, are reflected in some ways uh, changed or expanded in verses 22 and 23. So you get to hear all of it. And it helps us to see uh, where this glory is focused. I've given uh, the glory you've given to me, I've given to them. Okay, okay, to who? Well, he's telling us in verse 20 already. That first part of verse 20, first part of verse 22, parallel to, to one another. Uh, Jesus says, I'm not praying simply or only for the, for the first disciples, the apostles, um, but all who believe in me uh, through their word. Right? In other words, it applies to, to each and every believer, and it focuses it on as being grounded in a word-based faith. And who Jesus is and that he is what we need. Right? The, the apostolic message of the gospel that we still uh, sometimes will say together things like the Apostles' Creed to remind us of the historic truth of who God is, who Jesus is, and what is central for us. As the apostles were to go out as witnesses to who Jesus is, from then on, everyone who hears that and, and sees how much we need Jesus, that it, it exposes what we don't have but that he is more than that and he is enough for us. As we come to rely on him instead of ourselves, we get clothed in Jesus' glory. That all the glory, it involves having a weakness and seeing our sin and seeing our failure and seeing him is better than that, but then as we rely on him, we get united to, to his benefits. We get uh, his, become clothed in his glory. 
The honor, the privilege, the status that Jesus on earth had with his father belongs in full uh, to the church. Um, Maybe we can say it uh, this way, that that everywhere the Spirit works uh, faith in Christ, the Spirit also unites believers to Jesus. Paul would go on and on about this in in various places in Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that's ours in Christ Jesus. There's a real spiritual union uh, with Christ in it. That applies all the benefits of that relationship. I'm going to get across with just combining just a couple verses uh, from Colossians. Just to kind of keep us staggered in it all at what Jesus is saying here. Uh, as, as, As Colossians 1 speaks about Jesus, it says this of him. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? It's a beautiful thing uh, there. All the picture of the Old Testament and the temple and the tabernacle of God's presence uh, with his people. Uh, Jesus says here, that's me. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus uh, bodily. John 1 talks about it, right? That the word became flesh. He's lived among us and we have seen his glory. Um, or as Jesus uh, puts it here, uh, you and me and I and you. Jesus and the Father together in that glory. The fullness of God, of, of, of God dwells in Jesus. And then just a few verses later in Colossians, it says it this way. It speaks of the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is it? The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the fullness of God in Christ and Christ in you so that the people of God become the place where God dwells. We speak of it in terms of the sending of the spirit and the indwelling of the spirit in God's people. But here is the glory that belongs to the church, that belongs to you. Christ's glory in you, or is it succinctly, kind of harder to follow in John, he just kind of packs up all these pronouns, we're like, wait, what's the substance of that? But in verse, in verse 23, right, I in them and you in me, that here's that deep fullness of connection of, of humans, broken humans, with perfect, a full and loving Father, the fullness of God in his people for all believers. Now, I have a hard time appreciating that most of the time. It's kind of fun to get to talk about it and fun to get to preach about it. But I know most of the days when I go about stuff, that's not what's always forefront on my mind. And part of that is, is also because uh, I think we're often just we're aware of our shame. Right? We're not just aware of Jesus' glory or Jesus' glory in us, but there are other things that keep presenting themselves to us. And part of that, part of that is some of our failures, our shame. Brene Brown uh, talks about shame as not just being some of the things that you did wrong, but that feeling of like, what's wrong with me? Uh, what is it that makes me just defiled or polluted? Why doesn't someone want me? Or why should I stay away from people? Or what's keeping me away from people? And glory is the opposite of shame, right? Our glory and honor is the opposite from shame. More than that, our glory removes shame. It removes shame by covering it with honor and status and bestowing privilege in its place. Maybe the best uh, biblical picture of kind of understanding that, that sense of shame is very early on after the first sin in Genesis. 
And what do Adam and Eve do after they sin? They also feel ashamed of it. Uh, and where are they? But, but they feel exposed. And so they're hiding. Hiding from God. Is that where are you? And when they have to answer, they, they, they don't really want to own up to it. They, they want to blame. Uh, it, because they have the knowledge of good and evil now. And particularly this, right? That they, that they know evil and they know that they want it. That they chose evil instead of good. And so what does that say about them? Right, we, we can relate to that. Uh, we can re- relate to, to much of that. That the shame is something that, that separates uh, the fear of rejection, sometimes the deserving of rejection uh, that separates. But Jesus is the one who was rejected on behalf of his people. That he suffered uh, the shame of the cross, the shame of rejection uh, from uh, his father in order to restore those who trust in him to relationship. And not just to reconnection, but to privileged full status. The type of status that Adam didn't even have yet at creation that was held out as, as, the, as the completion and the fullness of, of when ultimately Christ's obedience would, would earn it. Uh, and that becomes the gift of Jesus to believers that he prays for uh, even in the moment we see here. I mean, that's still hard for us to catch a lot of times, but to at least... At least still go here. So, so what does that mean for you? Okay, this is a, a staggering statement of Jesus' glory is given to you. Uh, so what? So what do you, what do, you do with that? Uh, and maybe we'll at least start here. That, that it gives you a confidence. That, that are real in every moment and in every circumstance, uh, no matter who you're with and, and what they think of you, whether they like you, whether they're for you or against you, whether the circumstances are how you like or they're, or they're pretty rough, uh, there is a transcendent and overlying uh, confidence that belongs to you because Jesus gives you his glory. And you can stand uh, firm in it. Or if you were, if you were here last week, uh, no matter how weird you may be in the world eyes, you get to hold your head High, uh, as loved by God, as clothed uh, by Christ with his glory. Maybe along with that, one of the things that it, that it means for us is, is you have the freedom to tell shame to shut up. And, and we need that freedom. You get to tell shame to shut up because shame's going to speak and it's going to speak loudly and you're going to hear its voice. And sometimes it'll just be from your head or sometimes it's the voice of someone else speaking to you. But shame doesn't get the last word. It doesn't get the final word for you. It doesn't define you uh, because Jesus gives his glory to you and that defines you. And it covers the shame. It removes it and pushes it away. The truth of his glory also uh, reminds us and encourages us not to rely on other things. Uh, that maybe have a, have a sense of glory or importance to them, other unstable uh, things that, uh, that feel impressive uh, to us. Um, uh, whether that's sense of accomplishments, uh, the things that you're able to do, sometimes relationships or style or abilities, uh, your, your intellect, your, your, your athleticism, what, different things. It's okay to like realize unique abilities about you. That's good. Uh, but as we, as we start to rely on those things for our importance, 
It's pretty shaky. Uh, it's not the place where our heart can rest. And Jesus says to his church, here is where your significance lies. The glory the Father's given to me is yours in full. Still, since that glory is not complete, the, the, the full fullness of it is, is to come. Uh, we get a full part of it in, in, in the Spirit's uh, coming. But we're also still encouraged in Scripture to both to value it and to continue to develop it. I bring back again that parallelism of the connection that this glory is connected to this word faith faith. And faith isn't just a, a one time, oh, I believed in Jesus then. But our faith should continue to, to grow and be built up and developed and strengthened that we rely on that of what Christ has done for us. That's where scripture says, I'll let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You get to bask in that glory. Or 2 Corinthians uh, 3 talks about this way, that, that in Scripture you get to see the glory of who Jesus is. That's what the whole book of John is about. It's what the whole of Scripture is about. And that we are in Scripture then, through faith, beholding the glory of God. It makes this analogy of the way that Moses was in the tabernacle unveiled. It says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, by being in the Word, by seeing Christ uh, in it. And relying uh, on it. Um, Lead you with the emphasis of two things on, on glory. Uh, that, that for the church, for believers, this is your greatest glory. Uh, and bask in it, rely on it there. And also that this glory is not only yours individually. Uh, that this is, this is yours collectively. This belongs to the whole of Christ's body. So there's nothing that we can do that can add more importance to what Jesus has done. And it's also shared throughout the church, globally and historically. Glory in the place of shame is part of what Jesus prays for us and accomplishes for us. But secondly, we see Jesus' prayer for unity, right? for, for oneness. Uh, so, uh, glory in place of shame, but secondly, if we look at it this way, uh, unity in place of conflict. Uh, and maybe it's, it's this focus of the prayer on unity uh, that comes to the, to the forefront, that, the, that has the greater focus uh, of these verses. Um, Jesus says, uh, he's already said it in verse 11, we just kind of skipped over it last week, because he repeats it twice here, uh, that they may be one. Uh, and... and uh, the, the first statement we looked at, the glory was staggering. Uh, this, this also is just overwhelming. But here, to me, it's particularly the, the standard of comparison uh, that makes this prayer for unity so overwhelming, uh, that it pushes it past the top. Uh, that they may be one, we, what does Jesus say, even as we are one. That's what we can sometimes like marvel over the mystery of the Trinity. There's one God and three persons, and mathematically that doesn't make sense to us, but, but aesthetically and beautifully and understanding, here's the fullness of it. But the standard for the way you relate to one another and the way we relate to, to other Christians right now gathered in other parts of this town or Christians all across other places in the world, that the standard for how we get to relate to one another is the relationship that the persons of the Trinity have with one another. The way the Father and the Son love one another. The way the Spirit and the Son honor uh, the Father. All of that is what's involved uh, in it, Jesus says. So far in verse 23, to speak of it, um, 
uh, the eventual goal of it, that they may be uh, perfectly one, later fully accomplished what we're to be aiming at. Um, and that's hard to comprehend, but I want us to, to make sure that we see what it's, what it's grounded in, uh, to notice how this unity is grounded in a shared glory of Christ. Right? The basis for that unity, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's the glory that's the ground of it, that produces it. Put it this way. Um, if I love Jesus, if I love Jesus most, and Jesus is in you, uh, then, then whatever, then, then, then we have a bond that will outlast all other differences. And we may have various differences and disagreements and debates about certain things and have to work those things out. But there is a bond that outlasts all of those differences. Uh, and, and if I value Jesus above everything uh, else, um, then, it, then it matters less whether we have the same background or the same economic status or the same political persuasion, or the same interests or hobbies, and those things are great, and that's fine. But that's not what constitutes the relationship. That's not what, what makes it matter most. Um, the, the, the unity, the oneness that Jesus prays for, is a necessary consequence of together sharing the glory of Christ. That he has given it to the whole of his church. Um, so, so the... Uh, it, it's a it's a spirit created unity, right? It's not it's not something that we can uh, that we can bring about, and neither is it something that we can destroy. Ephesians uh, four would say it this way: that we're to to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It, as, as the glory of Christ, as the Spirit is given to all believers, there's the connection and the unity, and we're given a responsibility not to keep creating it or, or to do, do, but but to cultivate it. To develop it, uh, to enjoy it, and let it let it shine forth in our relationships with one another. So the so the diversity and the variety of human experiences, interests, and backgrounds isn't diminished at all. But it's, it's not like some kind of monad now of here's Christians are just all this way. But there's there's a lot of diversity in the church. There is a huge level of variety of, of what, uh, what all happens and how we go about it and where we come from. But it's brought together around sharing in Jesus, sharing relationship with God, sharing uh, his glory. And that's what Jesus prays in, in some ways foremost uh, for his church, unity among believers. I don't know, maybe already we're starting to think about like, all right, but there's a lot of ways where maybe we see that lacking. Uh, but before we get there, uh, I want us to, to appreciate just how amazing this is, uh, what Jesus prays and how it's true. Uh, that we're, uh, we, we see that a lot by contrast, right? So, so unity in, in, uh, uh, in, in place of, of conflict, because we're very familiar with conflict, um, but there's always drama, right? Okay, who you know, what context are relating to, to them, there, there's, there's always drama, maybe with some people more than others. No, that's just, that's just like putting conflict out there, right? It's, it's a little seed for conflict to grow. Uh, there's, there's always drama, whoever you are. There's drama in the workplace, there's drama at school, there's drama in your home life, drama in family relationships. Uh, the news is constantly reporting on conflict. 
whether that's you know, national conflict and geopolitical conflict or just interpersonal conflict and violence and harm and the hurt that comes from it, uh, the senseless uh, violence uh, like things that just happened in Texas. Uh, and it hurts. And it pains us to experience the conflict, small or, or, or tremendously over, overbearing. I can get sick of just hearing like the political rhetoric of, of Republicans and Democrats against one another and blaming each other and the constant polarizing of it. I'm like, could y'all just stop? I don't, don't want to hear the conflict. The con- conflict's everywhere. Um, right? if, if, you're, if you're married and you're like, Jesus is praying for unity, it would be great just to have like unity with your, with your spouse. Um, but you have conflict with your husband. You have conflict uh, with your wife. Uh, if you have your, your best friend who's known you for years and hopefully you know how to work things out, but you constantly still experience levels of conflict. Parents who in some ways are supposed to be the people that like love you most unconditionally in the world. <laughs> There's always conflict. Uh, if God blesses you with children and you're so thankful and delightful, here's this whole new human being who's like you and you get to raise, and it's not very long before they learn the word no, right? Or give you that face. And, and there, there's, there's conflict in all of our relationships. And now contrast that with the way that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit get along with one another beauty of mutual uh, love and affection that each person in fullness of love for the other in perfect agreement about everything. Perfect agreement in purpose, perfect agreement in, in the means that they go about it. There's, there's no ounce of conflict. There's an inseparable oneness, a unity uh, that's the pattern for what Jesus is talking about in the church. Jonathan Edwards uh, goes so far as to talk about our creation as being the outflow of, the, of Trinitarian love for one another. That in each person of the Trinity, uh, loving one another and wanting to show that love outward, that that's where creation uh, comes from. A display of each person's glory. A beauteous, harmonious perfection of mutual delight. And that's what we long for. We enjoy being around or hearing that. Then we have to ask, well, was that us? Is, is that, we see so many ways that that's not our experience. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus' prayer isn't answered? Uh, that he asked for this, or well, we're just, I guess we're still waiting on that part. Um, right? what, what about Christian conflict? Uh, they're, they're constantly, uh, we, we have difficulties with one another. Um, and, uh, and man, it's fun to talk to pastors and not fun, but to, to hear, you just constantly hear about church splits and church splits. Uh, and there's first Presbyterian and second Presbyterian and right, like all, all, all down the road. Um, saw some, some comment that at one point there was a count of, uh, of more than, more than 22,000 different Christian denominations, right? <laughs> That's staggering. Uh, how do we put that reality together with, with Jesus' prayer here. Um, and, and it is sad. Um, it's disappointing. It's ugly. It's in us. I think it exposes how little we esteem Christ's glory. It, it exposes how much sometimes we'll give equal value to, to less, uh, lesser distinctions and less important things. Um, but, but even though we do much to obscure it, uh, to not miss the reality of, yes, the Father answers Jesus' prayer. 
Uh, and yes, that is still true. That is, that is not simply an organizational unity. It's not an institutional uh, unity, nor, nor even a, a doctrinal unity precisely the last detail, right? That's not uh, what it creates. But it is a real and unbreakable uh, spiritual unity, like it or not. And you like it, and you should uh, like it. Uh, but it brings people of every race and every culture uh, together in Christ. Uh, we sing the hymn that says, One Lord, one faith, one birth. Right, from, the, from Ephesians uh, 4 again. One Lord, one faith, there it says, one, one baptism, uh, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. The language is of Jesus' prayer. Uh, and, and you get to worship with that variety of people uh, every week. Right? You, you get to worship uh, with Christians in China. Uh, and Christians in Russia and Christians in South America and in Africa is part of who we gathered together with in, in worship. People from every tribe and language uh, and tongue together uh, in Christ. It's a global phenomenon. It's not a Western thing. It's people throughout history and culture. And here, as you find one another, it's a place not of conflict but of belonging. Yeah, we still have to deal with the, with the conflict and we're warned and talked to you about that, but there's, there's a place of belonging. And here are other people who care about Jesus, who want to come and admit their failures too and not just be thrown out because of that, but be welcomed in and have a purpose and a place and a mission together that Christ calls us to what Jesus is leading us to. It's still an experiential unity. It's not just a theoretical. Uh, but it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, there, there's nothing else like the church. And there are plenty of problems with the church. But there's nothing else like the church that Jesus has created. Uh, historically and globally united together in love and sacrifice and glory of who uh, Jesus is. So what do we do with that unity? And what do we do with the, the disparity of our experience and, and that prayer? I think it calls us uh, to a lot of things. Um, and to start that, that uh, we're to love Jesus' glory in one another. That I get to see more of Christ in knowing you. And to value that uh, in, in, in each other. Uh, more than just the, the trivial things that we connect over, which don't, we're not dismiss. It's great to have relationships around other things, but to, but to let Christ be at the center of how we, what we talk about with one another at times. Uh, it means being involved in the church um, and building deeper relationships. Listen, I'm one of those people that, you know, like, yeah, if I was just standing around for a while, I'd just kind of, okay, I'm just going to wander toward the door. I don't want to wait for a conversation or something to, to develop. But, but, but we're called to enter into that. It doesn't necessarily mean being part of a community group, but it means having deep community. Uh, letting other people know uh, your needs and, and caring for them and entering into that. Uh, it, it means not just um, floating around, uh, maybe finding a church eventually. It, it calls you into to go ahead and find a depth of relationship. Right? Tallahassee's known as a church hop in town, and you go from one thing uh, to another, but it, but it calls us more than that. Calls us to deal with conflict as it develops, because it does, uh, and to experience 
forgiveness of Christ. Like if, if Jesus died uh, to give himself for this other believer, uh, even, if, even if we have a disagreement, if they've wronged me and hurt, hurt me, uh, how can I not give up my grudge against them? When Jesus would give up his life. I mean, passing over truth, actually deal with it, relate to it, but it but calls us into that. It, it warns us against gossip and, and bitterness and, and jealousy that, that plagues us, uh, but it also overcomes those things. Right? It gives you the confidence to develop those relationships because, because Jesus prayed for you to be able to have this kind of unity. So love one another when it's hard, and Jesus is working that out. The real bond really is there. We get to value the diversity of, of, of different groups of believers um, and not just uh, appreciate the things that, that we agree with or where we think that we're right on. Uh, unity in place of conflict. Glory in place of shame. Unity in place of conflict. And thirdly, um, thirdly influence. I'll say influence uh, in place of insignificant. I'm not sure that highlighting influence, focus on that word, is the best way to get the point across. You're not aiming at influence. Uh, but, it, but it's helpful to take encouragement how much influence the church has on the world. Uh, right? As Jesus, in, in both of these sections, as they're parallel, what do they come down to? Uh, the glory given to them that they may be one, even becoming perfect, perfectly one, so that. What's the result? The result that it's not unity for unity's sake, or it, that Jesus is accomplishing something through the relationship of his people and love for one another. Uh, so that the world may know. So that the world may believe and rely on Jesus as the one that they need. That's what your relationships with one another do. That's what they speak. That's what they proclaim to, to people around you. <clears throat> I don't want you to miss how significant this statement is in relationship even to the, to the other two things that to me are, are mind-blowing. Uh, but, but maybe to put it this way, to help us grasp with the significance of it, uh, that the, the, the most evangelistic thing that you do, the most evangelistic thing in a lot of ways that you can do uh, is being in deep, loving, and sacrificial community with other believers while you still exist in the world in relationships with regular people. Now listen, that's not apart from the word or the proclamation of the word. In fact, right, all these people, this who, this church, is those who, who are, who, who their very origin is from the word. It is the gospel lived out, in, the, the word lived out uh, in believers and who Christ makes believers to be through what he's done. Uh, that proclaims the gospel more widely and more fully and more beautifully. One of the commentators uh, says this, he says, The biggest uh, barriers to effective evangelism according to the prayer of Jesus are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as much as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. The negative side of it, the positive side of it is, is you're caring for one another and being here and loving one another proclaims Jesus. It helps the world that did not know him know him and see him in his people. It's not the only evangelistic thing you can do. 
I pray for people, ask their beliefs, I talk about Jesus, serve your neighbors, but nothing has more impact on the reality of the gospel lived than, than the reality of the gospel lived out and transformed our community. We often feel uh, insignificant in relationship to our, to our place in the world, uh, what we do and, and, and what we can accomplish. Uh, but here, from Christ's prayer, uh, it shows the impact that the gospel has. Uh, more transformative than anything else that we could do. Why, could, why would such different people be together and love one another? Why would they care so deeply and give so much for one another? Why is this not just an American thing? Uh, or not just a European thing? Not just a Western thing? Not just a, a, a 19th century or a, or a holdover from the 16th century thing? Uh, but it continues on and on. Proclaims the glory of Christ uniting his people around himself. According to Jesus' prayer, the result of oneness is the world knowing Jesus, coming uh, to trust in him. So it means pray for conversions. Pray for people around you because you have confidence that God's working in this. Uh, it, it also means invite other people into relationship with you. Uh, invite other people to church, invite them to community group, but also just, just mix your relationships, right? Sometimes it's like we have our Christian friends that we get together with, and we have the regular people that we talk to, and it is a good thing to let people see you in all those environments, to let that crossover show. And then people are like, how do you know that person? Why do you care for them? Why would they do so much for you? Uh, and you see that uh, in the church. Be open about your involvement. Love of the world. Influence in place of insignificance. Glory and unity and influence. If you were Meghan Markle today, you would feel pretty elated. And it would be hard for very much to get you down, to break your mood. How much more for the bride of Christ? Clothed in the glory of Jesus, are connected in harmony uh, with one another, uh, and, and moved out into the world, uh, showing the transforming life of Jesus. Uh, how deeply Jesus cares for us, and how fully uh, He has met our needs.